We've been exploring this fall just some themes that are happening in our culture, but trying to get beyond just our reactions, our politics, right? Is it, have you ever noticed how easy it is just to react? Like it takes almost zero thought to react, right? It's just like, hey, I'm in the emotion. I'm right here. And so what we're trying to do is have some intentionality of how we can begin to step beyond our reactions and into a truly Christian culture. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish here is uh, thinking about, in particular, we've been meditating on the doctrine of the image of God and this beautiful doctrine that is laid out as part of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And we've been looking at a number of different applications of this doctrine um, that really kind of interface with a lot of the conversations we're having right now in our culture. So we, we talked about human rights as really founded on a distinctly Judeo-Christian idea. So our question today are, as women as valuable as men? And as like simple of a question as this is, hopefully as we get into it, you're going to see that this is actually a very debated question from a global perspective, and that many Christians uh, who live in other contexts uh, culturally in other parts of the world, this is a very profound and important question for them. So today is going to be a lot of getting uh, more of a global perspective on our faith, and that is something that I'm always trying to bring into the class of how can we start to think about our faith beyond just America just in our little uh, corner of the world. How can we think about things historically? I'm often talking about the historic Christian faith. How can we think about things globally in our faith? Because our faith is multi-ethnic, right? Multi-racial. It's all over the world. You don't, you're not just a Christian because you're a certain ethnicity. That's one of the things that makes Christianity truly unique as, as a religion. So I thought it would be fun just just because I want us to notice some things at the beginning. Here's like a, a, a controversial word in our culture right now is the word feminism. So when you hear the word feminist or feminism, what is that? Because I love it that we have multi-generations in here because how this word was conceived even like in the seven, 60s and 70s is different than how it, was con- how it came to be known in the, in the 90s and the 2000s. So what is your thoughts or even your opinions or your feelings, we're just sort of noticing right now, um, when you hear the word feminist or feminism. Burn your bra. Burn your bra. That's a great (laughs) 1970s second wave feminist staying right there. Yeah. Feminazi. Feminazi. Yes, the Rush Limbaugh uh, connoisseur. Yeah. What's that? Angry women. Angry women. Yes. That's, Yeah. Empowered women, yes. Equality. Equality. Yeah. What else? Abortion. Abortion. Yeah. It, it has... Your body, is your, own. your body is your own. Your body, your choice. What else? Men haters. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad you said that. Because um, that is a very common thing. Yeah. And it's kind of a politically charged word, isn't it? And so then if you say you're a feminist, what am I saying? Am I saying that I belong to a certain political party? 
that I hold like a whole cluster of views with that. And if I say I'm not a feminist, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm not for equality? Like, what is that? Yeah, it's... Yes, and that is, um, again, very um, kind of second-wave feminism, 1960s, 1970s, uh, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment that that didn't pass, but that was a core component of that, of equal pay for (laughs) equal work. (laughs) Are those my children making that noise? No, okay. Yeah. This word is has a long history, actually. Does anyone know kind of about where feminism comes from historically? Yes. The, the, what's called first wave feminism was the women's suffrage movement about 100 years ago for women to get the vote. And... What's interesting about that, I tried to look for like a short and pithy video about this. Somebody needs to make one. But um, the, the women's suffrage movement in the, 100 years ago actually had deep roots in Christianity and deep roots in this whole idea of women being created in the image of God. And in fact, it was a sister movement to the abolitionist movement of the Civil War. And both had very deep convictions that people of other races and women were created in the image of God and that the image of God doctrine had certain implications for us as a society. And so first wave feminism, the classical feminism, was really what gave rise to the women's suffrage movement and the, the ability to, for women to vote. Second wave feminism was kind of what happened in the 60s and the 70s. The, the abortion, burning your bra, um, yeah, free sex, the kind of sexual revolution is what it came to be associated with. And there's some other interesting parts of that. I'm being grossly um, general right now. And then third wave feminism is sort of what happened in the 90s. This is a, a hard word because there's some parts of it that I really kind of am sympathetic to. There's some aspects of it that I'm very sympathetic to. And then there's other parts of it I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable with that, you know? And I like your comment earlier is like, I don't know if all these women speak for me. Right. You know, that's, that's a tension, right? And so when we think about the politics of feminism, I want us hopefully today to maybe take a step back and think like, okay, I'm not going to have a knee-jerk reaction to the politics, of the, of the word, and I'm, we're going to try to look at it more from the biblical side and from the Christian worldview side, okay? So I'm just kind of trying to get some of our assumptions there out on, on the table. So last week we introduced this paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, glorification. You remember that? And we explored all of that when it comes to work. We talked about how work was complicated by the fall, Work was part of the creation. I, I think like one or two of you remember that. Okay, good. Um, so we're going to revisit this paradigm because I'm hoping this will stay with you. So we're going to start once again in Genesis chapter 1. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And again, we see in Genesis chapter 5 
this is the written account of the descendants of Adam when God created human beings. He made them to be like himself. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. Now, what I want us to notice here is that both the man and the woman are created in the image of God. It's not that God created the man first, and then he created the woman as sort of this afterthought, and then she sort of got the image of God from him kind of as afterthought. That's not how that happened. I think it's interesting that Scripture is so, so pointed about this, this, this issue. And even in that ancient kind of patriarchal context that the Bible comes from, that it was so important to God to explain that both the man and the woman were created in his image. And then we see in Genesis chapter 2, it says this. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Remember, we've talked about this before. There were many things in chapter 1 that were good. On the first day, he he said, and, and it was good. And the second day, and it was good. And the third day, and it was good. But then he gets to this statement in chapter 2, and it was not good. It was not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Then the Lord God made a woman. Now, this business about being a helper, okay? I, I you know, for a long time, I thought that what the, the Bible was telling us was that, that Eve was sort of like the backup singers, to Adam. You know, it was like the nameless backup singers. He's out in front. He's the one getting the, getting the accolades, right? And, and that she was the helper. She was the one coming along behind, making the meals and sweeping the floor. This was, this was the, the image that I had of the word helper, because this is an English word. And, and that's kind of what the, the connotation of that word is. And, and we have a lot of of cultural things that we think in our mind about about the word helper. But when I began to reflect on these things more deeply, and I started looking into the Hebrew a little bit more, this word azer, for helper, is a very interesting word. It, what it's really saying is that it's a strong helper. It's some someone who holds up the other person in a strong way. The, the picture that one of the commentaries I read this week was that if, if you remember medieval architecture, the flying buttresses on the cathedrals, that's what the azer is. Now, if you don't have flying buttresses, what's going to happen to your ceiling? It's going to fall down. <laughs> that's, yeah, it was essential. It wasn't just an afterthought. It was an essential part of the architecture from the beginning. And that this is what this word is like, that she is the helper and I think what's interesting is that God identifies himself multiple times in the Old Testament. And I've given you just a few references there as an Azare. He is our helper in time of need. Isn't that interesting? We don't think of God as some sort of afterthought, right? We don't think of him as some kind of second class citizen. He is our helper in time of needs and he is a strong helper. And here's just one, one verse where God calls himself the Azar. This is from Psalm 146. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals, in whom there is no help. That's sort of interesting in our current political climate, isn't it? Don't put your trust in mere men. Don't put your trust in kings or presidents. 
in whom there is no help, no help. Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. The God of Jacob is our Azar. He is our helper. And Azar is, is not so much a role that we play for the women in the room. It is not so much a role or a season of life as a wife, as a mother, or as a worker. And Azar is more like a calling. It is more like our identity. It is that stable part of us that God has created in us. It's our purpose. This is what this word is telling us. And I think so often the, the idea, the English word Azar has been interpreted to, to mean a role of wife or mother. And that that's where we get our value is as a wife or mother. Well, then what do you tell a single woman? Or a divorced woman who's never had children? Is she less valuable in the eyes of God because she has no husband or no children? Not at all. Because the Azar is, is not a role. It's a calling. It's an identity. So when we think about this, just a few points on creation is that men and women are both created in the image of God. Both have equal dignity, value, and worth. And the woman is not a second-class citizen. She is a co-worker, a co-reigner, a co-laborer with the man. Did you notice that we've, and we've read this passage many times before, that chapter 1, the, the commission to conquer the earth, to go rule the earth and subdue it, is given to whom? Just the man? No, it's to the man and the woman. They're going to do it together. They're going to co-reign the planet together. They're going to co-labor together. And this is the, God's ideal from creation. I think what's interesting is when you notice the differences between chapter 1 and chapter 2. The chapter 1 is like so clear. It's like the big picture. Let me tell you the big picture of everything that's happening. That the man and the woman are both created in the image of God. And then chapter 2 kind of zooms in on day 6 and gives us more details of, of those events. But I think what's maybe what it's doing is that it's telling us that not that she was an afterthought, but how necessary she was. That he couldn't do all of the tasks that God had given him to do with by himself. She wasn't an afterthought. She was a necessity that he couldn't do it alone. It was too much. And he needed her. And, but maybe he needed to foresee his need that he needed her. So let, now let's talk about the fall. Because so far all I've, I've depicted here is the ideal God's, God's ideal, right? But then something dreadful has, happens at the fall. The image of God remains after the fall, but is marred and defaced. He says to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, and he will rule over you. The consequence of the fall is that the, the male-female relationships become very complicated, don't they? And if, if we see that as a result of the fall, it's not God's design that our relationships between men and women become complicated. It's part of the fall. It's part of our sin as to why we have such a tough road ahead of us. This is, I think, a part of the curse and that we as women sometimes want to control other people. I think I see this a lot. It's, in the, all, it's always going on. 
It's it's we almost seem programmed to do this at times. But there is this is the part of the difficulty is and and I might even suggest um, that the relationships between men and women are complicated and uh, not ideal because of the fall. It's it's and, and the women are trying to survive. And one of our survival instincts, I think, is to try to control. And the men are trying to subdue. And that is how it seems like what we're born into, this very complicated situation. And so at the fall, just to review last week, we had this slide. The fall created alienation between God and humans. There were three consequences of the fall. God and humans, humans and each other, and that includes men and women, and then between humans and the earth that was designed to support them. And that number three was what we talked about last week, about work. So we live in the state of the fall. And so then between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, relationships between men and women are corrupted, broken, and filled with people, again, capable of great beauty and great wretchedness who both exploit each other. I mean, is that not a lot of the dynamics in our culture today? That the image of God is still in us after the fall. There's a part of us that still reflects the image of God. And wherever I see that, I can praise that. Where I see good and truth and beauty in the realm of God's common grace, I can praise that and say, that's a reflection of the image of God at work. But where I see wretchedness, that's a result of the fall that is coming and being made manifest through us. And so when we exploit each other, when men exploit women and women exploit men, because we know it goes both directions, right? You know, when we do that, we are acting in our sinfulness, in our sin nature, in our brokenness, not as in our created being, but in our fallen state. We live in a fallen and broken world. We cannot expect relationships between men and women to be without complication. Conflict and exploitation of women and of men is the result of the curse, not the creation. Okay? This was like a revolutionary concept for me when I... This dawned on me one day as I was studying scripture. I was like, oh, I get it that this is... This isn't, when I see wretchedness, that's not how God set that up. That's the result of the curse. That's what man is bringing to the situation. And so what I see in creation is God's ideal. It isn't his ideal beautiful. Isn't the, the way that he set it up truly beautiful in this, this world that he set up that we are to co-labor together, that we're to be a team together to subdue the earth. But we live in the fall, and so suspicion and fear has replaced trust and love. This is what keeps marriage counselors in business. We engage in suspicion, right, and fear, and a lack of trust, and all of those things are as a result of the fall. And male-female relationships today reflect the alienation between the sexes, making them all the more difficult. It is hard to be in relationship 
between men and women. And we had this great sermon today on relationships. And here I am talking about all the brokenness. And I was thinking in, in the sermon today that one in seven marriages have a current reality of domestic violence. One in seven. And most of those people in those marriages don't even realize they're in an abusive marriage. They, they, they think that what they're doing is normal. It's hard, but it's, it's normal. And I talk to these women all the time in my prayer ministry. And one of the harder conversations I have to have with a woman sometimes is when I have to tell them, this isn't normal. This is not what the pastor's talking about up there, where we just have like kind of a, a difficult pattern of behavior. So let's sit down and talk about it. We'll go to some marriage counseling and we'll work on things. But one in seven women in that auditorium this morning, I'm sitting there thinking, are probably in some kind of abusive marriage. And they, many of them do not even know it. This is the fall. This is the current reality of living in the fall. And the state that we're in, because we're between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. That's our part of the timeline where we are right now. And so then we go to redemption. Redemption is the third great movement of scripture. It says in Romans 8, 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Jesus came and part of what we receive in redemption is the ability to become conformed to his image he is the great transformer of our sinful souls right that we want to come back into harmony with god and that we want to become conformed to his image and that becomes our great vision as Christians, of what we want to be doing is becoming more and more conformed, more and more transformed into his likeness. Jesus is the perfect representative for both men and women of the image of God and that we are being made like him. See, and, and I think in the Christian vision of manhood and womanhood, the ideal person is Jesus. It's to aspire to his love. It's to aspire to be his disciple, if you will. And we want to become more conformed to him. It's not about our roles. And, and, you know, Jesus doesn't give us any commands about women, you need to wash the dishes. Men, you need to mow the lawns. Right? He says, no, this is what you need to be doing. You need to love your enemies. He doesn't say women love your enemies, but men, you can do whatever you want to your enemies. He doesn't say that, does he? He calls men and women alike to discipleship, to become conformed to the image of himself. Acts chapter 2. This is on Pentecost. It says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Men and women both receive the Holy Spirit, all of the Holy Spirit. There's not like the women's portion and the men's portion of the Holy Spirit. You get the whole thing, right? And we are his people and we become his temple. This is where he dwells. 
is in us. He doesn't dwell more in men than he does in women. He dwells in us both as his people. Holy Spirit dwells equally in both men and women. The Great Commission is for both men and women. Go, therefore, into all the earth and preach the gospel. He doesn't say, men, here's what you're up to. You're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the Great Commission for all of us. It's our identity. It's our call. And I actually think, you know, someday it'd be fun to do a message on this, but uh, I actually think the Great Commission is the, the new statement of Genesis chapter 1 when he tells Adam and Eve to go fill the earth and subdue it. I think that the new command is to God's people, go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And that that is our new commission as God's people and what we're doing. And that that is, again, we're both called to be disciples and to be co-laborers with each other as we go out. I love John chapter 4. Uh, It's the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. I think it's interesting that what she does after she meets Jesus, she goes back to her village, and what does she do? She tells everyone. She's really like the first evangelist. She goes back and she tells everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. You know, he had this prophetic word about me. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see Jesus. I love that story because she goes back to tell her oikos in, in our terms. She, she is, a, she is a, an evangelist. Um, we see in Luke chapter 10, this is another one of my favorite stories. This is Mary and Martha. You know the story of Mary and Martha? You know, Jesus comes to their house. One of them is very busy. Um, but Mary, Martha's very busy, but Mary, what's she doing? She's hanging out at his feet. Yeah, what is that about? So here's the thing about this. Um, when I, I was always taught, I always heard in sermons, you know, like the, the Mary was, or Martha was very busy. She was the house cleaner. And then and, and Mary was just sort of hanging out, kind of loafing. And she's just there. Jesus, she's just relishing him. Well, one day I'm studying this and I realized as I'm doing research on ancient Jewish culture, that what this is when it says that Mary's sitting at his feet, that's a way of saying she was his disciple. Because that's what disciples did to rabbis, is they would sit at their feet and learn. That was a way, that was, that, this was Luke's very euphemistic way of saying she was doing man's work. She was sitting at his feet as a disciple, like the only men would be sitting at the feet of a rabbi. Jesus doesn't reprimand Martha for what she's doing, but she's engaging in the traditional cultural role as a woman. But he, he does say that Mary's way is more excellent because she is learning as a disciple. And what Jesus is basically doing here is he's inviting women to be his disciples. And Luke is a very pro-woman gospel. There, he sprinkles the women here and there throughout it. So when you know to look for it, you start seeing it. But the women were included as disciples. They weren't part of the 12, but they were definitely in the, the part of his inner circle. And they were invited to become disciples and to learn from him. Also, have you ever noticed that the fruit of the Spirit, 
ought to be manifest in the lives of both men and women. It doesn't say, here's the fruit for men. Here's the fruit for women. That, you know, kindness. Sometimes I, I have a video on my YouTube channel about, like, attributes of men and women. You know, women are nurturing. Women are kind. Women are all these things. Men are rugged and strong and all of these other words. But none of those are actually words that we get from the Bible. Scripture says, fruit of the Spirit, boom, let this be made manifest in your life. He doesn't say, well, the women, you focus on kindness over here. Men, you can kind of opt out of the kindness. It's a challenge for both of us, isn't it? Spiritual gifts. There's no spiritual gift list that says, here's the men's spiritual gifts. Here's the women's spiritual gifts. Once you have Holy Spirit, you got him. And you don't know how that's going to show up for you. And that's what has to come in your life. Both men and women are to live out the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. So this is, this is kind of a little way of trying to understand this. That our calling and our identity as Azares women, or if you have girls who are your daughters, dads, this is the identity and calling that you want to build in them. That they are somebody who is essential to the world. That that is part of their human dignity and value and worth as women. Their, their roles will be for a season. They can be a wife. They can be a mother. They can be a worker. But they could also have a Job moment where all of those things are wiped away in a minute. So what does that mean? Does that mean they're not a human person anymore? No. That is their essentialness, their calling and identity. That stays stable. That is from God himself. Our spiritual gifts are another aspect of us, our personality, our interests. If you are taking the strengths finder or a personality test, God's made us all different, right? And so all of the spiritual gifts, they get expressed through our personalities, but God calls us to transform our minds and our behaviors to be more and more in conformity with his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the call on all of us, men and women alike. And so we want to, this is kind of my way of, of thinking about, about these issues. These are all aspects of who we are in our identity and our personality and our roles, but they're all part of who we are. And another aspect of thinking redemptively about our relationships in the body of Christ, this is just one verse from 1 Timothy. It says, Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would your own father. Talk to younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. The vision of the the family of God is that we're a family and that we treat each other respectfully, carefully, lovingly, kindly. Now, do we always do that? No, because of the fall, right? But if we're going to live as God's redeemed people, this ought to be our goal, that we we don't treat each other um, as uh, in an exploitive way, but we treat each other in a kind, caring way as a family. We ought to respect all human relationships between, even those between men and women, they should be continuously uh, transformed under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I I know this is going to be sort of a controversial point, but I'm just asking you to try it on. Um, That we, if, 
a truly holy person ought to be able to have some level of meaningful relationship with the opposite sex. Everything doesn't have to be about sex. When we think about a fear of, I can't have a relationship with a man that's a friendship, to me, I'm only thinking of that under the paradigm of the fall. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, there has to at least be the possibility that I can have some kind of meaningful friendships with a man, with a peer. And there's been moments in my life where I've needed that. There were some moments in my life where my marriage was in big trouble. And one of my coworkers was just so kind to me, occasionally praying with me and just encouraging me to keep standing for my marriage. And he was a man. And that was a redeemed relationship. It doesn't have to be result in sexual exploitation. And if we have that mindset that it has to result in that, then we're thinking under the curse. We're thinking under the fall. We're not thinking, I'm powered by the Holy Spirit. This other man is empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we're both holy and we're both actively mature in the Lord and working toward transformation in the image of Christ, we should be able to have some kind of friendship with each other to encourage one another in the Lord. And I think that too often we, we, we think about our relationships only under the fall paradigm. And we have to, I think, at least try on the idea of how can I begin to think as a redeemed person. And when we use phrases like, well, that's just the way I am, or it's always going to be that way, what room does that give the Holy Spirit to come in and begin to change things, to begin to change our mindsets or change our, even our personalities? And I'm just trying to create a vision of, could we consider that as redeemed people, maybe there could be something higher that we could aspire to, and that it, there could be another possibility. And that's why I like Paul's words about considering each other as brothers and sisters. You know, I wouldn't, unless I'm a complete deviant, I wouldn't try to exploit sexually a family member. I would treat them you know, like there's family loyalty there. And I think about my brother in a different way than I think about other men. And that ought to be the mindset that we have about one another um, in the body of Christ. And so just, just to kind of throw that out there for something for you to think about. Yeah, that's such a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up because this is a message I'm hinting at, bigger themes of that we are created for community. We are not created for isolation. I really believe that. I actually believe that isolation is a scheme of the enemy to keep us trapped. And that people who are single, when we send them a message, when we send single people a message that they can't have a fully orbed identity unless, if you're a woman, that you're a wife or a mother, you're you're truncating the body of Christ. And you're turning a role into her identity. Their triangle mixed up, and their identity is in their role. Yeah. And then when that changes, they're lost. Who am I? Oh my gosh, I don't know what to do anymore. Yeah. I'm no longer a mother. My son's grown. Exactly. Now, who am I? (laughs) But this is a to me, this is such a helpful vision to know that there's something more to my essential person than just my role as a wife or a mother. And if something were to, you know, God forbid, ever happen to that. 
that I am still there in God's calling, in my spiritual gifts, and in my identity to help bring the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And there's such a legacy of single women who have done great work to help the Great Commission push forward. And I think that this is part of the God's redemption work for all of us. But I think we are absolutely created for community. And that if you're single, you still need people. Even if you're not married, you need people. The enemy wants to keep God's people in isolation. I see this all the time. It is such a common scheme of the enemy to beat people down, to tell them they're not good enough, no one's going to accept you, you know, stay isolated. And that is not God's call to us. His call is an invitation to come be part of God's people. Now, how often do God's people act in the paradigm of the fall? Often. We, we get hurt, right? But we want to try, those of us who are really trying to strive to be conformed to the image of Christ, we're trying to invite people into a more transformational and redemptive culture. Glorification is our final, final movement. The dead in Christ will rise, and they will, neither will many be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like angels in heaven. We will not have marriage in heaven. The idea of marriage being eternal is not a distinctly Christian idea. That is an LDS idea. Marriage is not eternal. So if your marriage ends in this life, it doesn't mean you're less of a person. It's just that that's your current reality in this life. But in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, marriage is not going to be a thing. I think the level of intimacy that we have in the new creation will potentially parallel what marriage should have been on earth in a truly redeemed state. But we don't often get there. And we know from Revelation 21 that in heaven there will be no more sorrow or crying or pain. So this tells me male-female relationships are going to be fantastic <laughs> in the new creation. Because there's no more marriage counseling there. Yeah. You said uh, a meaningful relationship with everyone yeah. as a redeemed person. Yeah. Not, not as a... Not as a I think having become an adult in the 60s, because I was a teenager in the 50s, mm. but, and my mother was never, she didn't work after she was married. You grow up, I grew up thinking my role was to be a housewife, a, a helpmeet yeah. housewife yeah. and a mother. I never worked until later. And I still thought of my identity as being a role at home. Yeah. My role as being at home. And now, at my age, I'm starting to realize that my identity is actually in Jesus. That's right. Really. Yeah. First. I'm not first Richard's wife, first Claudia McNeil's mother, you know, first Carolyn or RJ's mother, or my grandchildren's yeah. grandma. I'm, my identity's in Jesus. That's right. And if he's decided that my health isn't very good, I shouldn't be complaining about it all the time. Hmm. You're, that's so beautiful because you are all those things. You are Richard Gady's wife. You are RJ's mother. And that's never going to end in, in this life. But your first identity 
is in Jesus. And that is the whole point of this little escapade. So, yeah, that's... But to be your identity first and Christ makes all the other relationships so much more impactful and more purposeful. Yes. I'm working on that. Yeah. At this age, I'm working on it. And that's what I love about you, Mrs. Gady, is that you're always working on it. You're such a learner. And that's so, su- such, a, such a, a beautiful example that you have given my children. And I thank you for it. And I bless you for it. Because you have taught my children to never stop learning. And that that, that can be, that even at your age you can say, wow, there's something I, I, I got to start grappling with that, even at a deep level in your identity. And I, I, I bless you for your courage in saying that, because that is, that is truly what I'm trying to cause here today. So well, I want to talk about Acts 19 a little bit. Acts 19 is a very interesting passage because to me it, it shows how disruptive the gospel ought to be to a culture. If the gospel is not being disruptive to a culture and that cultural values, the question we should be asking ourselves is what happened? What is our gospel? And why is it not being disruptive? So Paul goes to Ephesus and uh, kind of starting around verse 23. It says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way, which is a, a euphemism for Christians. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. In other words, he was very successful. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. Verse 26 And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are not gods at all. There is danger, danger, not only to our trade, that will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they all heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. Paul seized Gaius in Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to go into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. It was true riot mentality. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd and shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, men of Ephesus, Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not to do anything rash. In other words, calm down. 
let's just all chill out here a second. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have, have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is nothing further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said that, he dismissed the assembly. And then Paul and his apostles left for Macedonia. So I think it's interesting that the gospel is disruptive to culture. It is disruptive to the, the values and the relig- even the religious values of a culture. The, the gospel cannot come in somewhere and have no effect. It's not neutral. It's going to be disruptive. And if our message is not disruptive, my question is, is what has happened to our message? Have we watered it down? Are we not really living in the true Christian culture? Because in this situation, their livelihood and their religion were both being disrupted by the gospel. I mean, two things that kind of hit you right, right where it hurts, right? How am I going to make a living for my family? Demetrius was worried that if, if all these Christians get converted and stop worshiping Artemis, I can't make a living. How am I going to support my children, right? The gospel is disruptive. And part of what we're doing in this series is I'm slowly introducing these topics. I want us to begin to think about how we ought to be a disruption to our own culture. How the gospel ought to be a disruption to how we think and how we live on some level.